You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on October the 25th. We'll pretend it's October the 25th. Um, more on why we have to pretend in a minute. October the 25th, the 108th anniversary of the Battle of Agincourt or Azincourt, where King Henry V of England routed French troops and indeed reportedly killed around 6,000 of them in 1415, and which Mark Cavendish rather dubiously claimed he was referring to when he celebrated a stage victory in the 2010 Tour de Romandie with a two-fingered salute. Cavendish later pointing out that he was merely mimicking the French archers at Agincourt, who, after the French cut off two fingers and a thumb on each of their hands, held up their remaining digits in a gesture of defiance. My name is Daniel Freeber, and I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast, in which we'll discover whether Azincourt, Agincourt, Agincourt, I had real problems with pronouncing this yesterday, or indeed any of the north of France features on the 2024 Tour de France route presented yesterday, today in Paris. And we may pronounce on whether Christian Prudhomme et al. deserve a high five, a big 10, or an up yours for the parkour that they will lay on for the Grand Boucle next July. Joining me to do all of that rather aptly are a feisty Englishman in Rob Hatch. Hello, Rob. Uh, hello. A while since I've been referred to as an Englishman, so I'm just getting over that. And a sanguinary Frenchman in Francois Tomazo. I'm not very good with a bow or an archer. I've never been much of an archer, but uh, even darts, I'm bad at darts, so I wouldn't wouldn't have been good in Azincourt, as we say, but I'm here. Azincourt. Yeah. yeah. Um, the confusion, <laughs> chaps, the confusion about the dates or the day, is it today or is it yesterday? We did have a first go at recording this podcast yesterday on on october the 25th lionel bernie was present for that recording however there was a bit of a technical uh, hiccup shall we say or a monumental cock-up um for which we share collective responsibility no no it's it my has... it's, it was my fault but that's that's what <laughs> that's that that's what happens when you have uh, you know an old pensioner in the you know <laughs> on the on the podcast and you know and 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 you know you know new technology and old guys they don't work well together that's the problem anyway my yeah i just recorded my part with the record levels at zero which is not very good for an ex-musician and sound engineer but that's the way it was <laughs> one day one day chaps one day francois this recording will be excavated from i don't know the, the ocean bed of lost data like the wreckage of the titanic and um, will posthumously be disgraced by um on account of what we said in this ghost recording, this phantom recording yesterday. Um, however, it's now Thursday and it's now the 26th. So that whole intro about Agincourt, 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 I really, really cannot pronounce this in English. And I could until about three days ago, until I started reading up on this battle. Um, but it's thrown me, the fact that it's Agincourt. Um, so that's all been rendered kind of irrelevant because we're not talking on the 808th anniversary anymore chaps we are here today mainly to discuss the 2024 tour de france presentation we're going to get on to that in just a minute and um, we're going to start though as we usually do as we always do with a news roundup which we'll try to rattle through um we'll start with some very sad news and um, that's the death of the 20 year old dutchman mark Groenewelt, who 
2023, so this season, competed for the X-Speed United Continental team. Kronevelt died of a suspected heart attack in Hong Kong. This was just a couple of days after competing in the Hong Kong Cyclothon there. Um, he'd abandoned the race early due to a mechanical problem. Next, some transfer news, which we'll, we expect... We're, we're going to hear more. Well, we're going to hear more transfer news over the next couple of weeks. And in last week's episode, we heard about Davide Formolo winning the Veneto Classic. Shortly thereafter, 31-year-old Italian was unveiled among Movistar's new recruits for the 2024 season. Formolo signed a three-year deal. He's also told the Italian media he wants to add some cobbled classics to his program next year. Last week, the team also confirmed several other new signings. Remy Cavagna from Sudal Quickstep, Javier Romo from Astana, Pelayo Sanchez from Burgos Biace, Carlos Canal from Huescaltel, and Manila Moro from the Zalf under-23 team in Italy. They also said goodbye to Jose Joaquin Rojas, who is retiring at the age of 38 after 17 seasons with the team, among other team, among other things. Sorry, Rojas was famed for his curious knack of finishing races in fourth place, something he achieved 49 times in his career. We established yesterday in the first edition of this podcast that we thought our friend Ed Pickering was um, the instigator of a bit of a meme about Rojas finishing fourth in his career. Um, something that he did very, very frequently. Um, we also speculated as to why he preferred to finish fourth, or why he finished fourth more commonly than he did third. There was some scurrilous... Well, he wasn't fast enough to finish third? No, Possible. shy guy, so he didn't want to go on the podium, or, uh, you know, afraid of podium girls at the time, who knows? End of an era at Movistar with Imanol Erviti also retiring. Um, meanwhile, continuity was or has been the word of the week at Ineos Grenadiers. Geraint Thomas has renewed his contract with them for another two years. And Carlos Rodriguez, who, of course, reportedly negotiated himself out of a pre-contract agreement with Movistar, he will now remain at Ineos until the end of 2027 at least. Um, a lot of debate, discussion, conjecture about what exactly is going on at Ineos Grenadiers. Um, we, Lionel, Lionel as well, has been speaking to a few people about that. And uh, the word seems to be that there's going to be a lot of renewals over the next few days, maybe, weeks announced. Um, also, yesterday, we had a bit of a stop press uh, the very hotly, highly touted American rider, 18-year-old American rider, Andrew A.J. August, has signed for Ineos Grenadiers. Um, August, who was described by one of his coaches recently, Francois, I think, as um, being basically Remco Avonapol, but more powerful. Right? That's like your old French literature teacher writing on your report. Francois is basically Gustave Flaubert with, <laughs> with a better turn of phrase. No pressure. Andrew August. We'll have to see uh, how good August will be in July. <laughs> that was ah, uh, uh, that was a line. I mean, to introduce the next part, you know, <laughs> about the Tour de France routes. <laughs> Is it good enough? We'll keep it. <laughs> well, we're on take. We're on take two already. So come on. <laughs> Cyclocross. I said last week I was boycotting this sport. 
This discipline, sport within a sport, until the road season had officially ended well. I've run out of road and excuses, so I'll tell you that the super prestige races at Overreiser took place at the weekend with Ellie Isabit winning among the men and Femke van Empel among the women. There was also a big gravel race at the weekend, the Big Sugar gravel race to be precise, and two winners there, men and women respectively, were Tojon Reed and Cassia Nievadoma in the women's race. Um, of course, Nieva Doma, also the women's gravel world champion as of about two weeks ago. Next, well, we're going to talk about one big presentation in Paris later in the show, namely the 2024 Tour de France presentation, but there was another one on Tuesday night and it was the Velo d'Or Awards. Now, these are about the closest cycling gets to the Oscars in film or the Ballon d'Or in football, and they've been given a bit of extra razzmatazz this year with the gala event that took place in the Pavillon Gabriel. Just adjacent to the Champs-Élysées, a panel of 45 journalists from 25 countries voted. And the winners were, in the women's category, Demi Vollering, well ahead of Lotta Kopecky and Annemiek van Vleuten. And as far as the men were concerned, Jonas Vingegaard, much more narrowly over Mathieu van der Poel and Tadej Pogacar. Van der Poel and Kopecky did take home a new award, the men's and women's Eddie Merckx Prize as the best classics riders, while Christophe Laporte and Pauline Ferrand-Prévost were recognised as the best French riders of the year. Now, fellas, now chaps, there was a little bit of hand-wringing about the award, particularly the men's award, best man best male cyclist of the year. Jonas Vingegaard ahead of Mathieu van der Poel, Tadej Pogacar. Um, a lot of people didn't agree with this. Um, you can have my thoughts in a minute, but what were your thoughts? Well, my thoughts were that, uh, you know, uh, Jonas Vingegaard won the the, um, the leading the cycling event in the world, which is the Tour de France. And it's, it's obviously a bonus that you get. I, th I think uh, in our Ghosts uh, episode uh, yesterday, Lionel mentioned that uh, 17 out of 30-something uh, Velodor in the past have gone to, which is more than half, went to the Tour de France winner. I mean, it's, it's, sounds of, it's kind of logical. I mean, the Ballon d'Or in football, uh, one, you know, guys who won the World Cup or the Champions League have, a, have an extra uh, chance of winning it. So to me, it's not uh, at all unjustified. Uh, same, uh, also we pointed out that, I mean, Vingegaard had an almost flawless uh, season, finishing in the top three of every single race he entered, mainly. Uh, uh, his worst result with Paris-Nice, uh, finishing... I, I think he was two days in Paris-Nice away from perfection uh, maybe longer maybe longer climbs as well as well yeah i see what i think but he probably would have won the welter had he wanted to or had he been in a position to do it i mean had it been designed as the leader in a meeting or whatever so i mean it, it Anyway, it was not far from that. And uh, Daniel, as you pointed out uh, in uh, another discussion, uh, the, the way he didn't win it is, is, amounts to a victory in, in terms of uh, uh, gentlemanship, uh, fair play, sportsmanship, and blah, blah, blah. So to me, the only contentious point, and that's probably why they introduced the Eddie Merckx uh, Prize for Classics winner, uh, winners or classic riders, is that uh, gra uh, Grand Tour contenders obviously will be favoured in, in this sort of uh, uh, rankings uh, against uh, classics uh, riders. So should Pogacar or Van Poel won the Eddie Merckx uh, uh, prize? That might have been a discussion there. But comparing, but I mean, Van Der Poel, 
in spite of his fantastic season, was not didn't do much in Grand Tours, and and and, and unfortunately, Grand Tours are to cycling what Grand Slams are to tennis. If he'd have won a tour stage or two, things might have changed. Because if you look at his classic season. <laughs> I mean, impressive doesn't cover it, does it? Because he won San Remo. All the history there with his granddad and all that sort of stuff as well really made the drama and, and the event, didn't it? He was second in the Driepres. He was second in the Ronde van Vlaanderen. He won Paris-Roubaix. Um, all right, he didn't win the Nationals. He went to the Tour and didn't really get close, did he, this year? He was sort of anonymous for a lot of the race. It wasn't his July. But he then did what he did in the World Championships with the drama, with the crash... The thing about Fonda Poole is there's always a bit of extra story, isn't there? Because of who he is, because of how he does it. And I think that's probably why people were trying to get behind the narrative of, well, this has created this sort of entertainment. And then there's the opposite thing about Jonas Vingegaard. Don't take anything away from his performance because he's absolutely sensational. But he's not exactly a charisma machine, is he? And I think that, that I think a lot of fans might have done that. But again, it depends what you want in your in your in your sporting heroes, doesn't it? You can, I can completely buy into the logic that you were just explaining there, Tomazo, but I can also understand why some Vanderpool devotees, the ultras, the Vanderpool ultras will have been upset. There is a bit of a cadre of uh, Mathieu Vanderpool fans who are very vocal on social media. There's a there's a sort of uh, there's a hipster element to Mathieu van der Poel fandom, I would say, um, maybe which maybe emerges from the sort of shadows of his cyclocross past. I, I always get that sense. There, there is a sort of a, a devoted clique of cyclocross fans who have who have travelled with van der Poel and become sort of fully fledged. I mean, a lot of them were already road fans, but. Um, it's as though when they are supporting Van der Poel, they're not only supporting him, but they're supporting their sort of wearing their fandom of cyclocross on their sleeves as well. That's what I always feel. Mm, the same applies to Grand Tours. I mean, you, you have on the, uh, the social networks the guys who don't like the Grand Tours or who would say the, the, the Tour de France is, is, you know, is not actually the best Grand Tours and the Giro should be higher up. I mean, it, you're sitting with two of them today. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I mean, you, it's, like, it's like Wimbledon. Being a Frenchman, I, w- I would claim that the French Open in tennis is probably a better tournament but the, but the fact is you know the tour is the tour yeah. Wimbledon is Wimbledon and uh, I mean they're, 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 these are monuments you can't and going back to the disputes I mean in terms of maths you know the guy who scored the most UCI points was neither uh, Vingegaard or it was Pogacar so I mean so there are many ways uh, to discuss that they were in the, they were the top three and then and then well it's it's a poll of journalists so uh, so and, and you know and uh, each with the uh, with their national biases and uh, so I guess that uh, it's like the Ballon d'Or you know all these rankings they're, they're always disputed and always someone says oh if he doesn't get it this year when will he you know well but it'd be boring if they weren't wouldn't it <laughs> yeah, sure. also also chaps um, there are no clear criteria apart from I believe what the challenge that's given to the journalists on the panel is to name the best rider of the year but um, within that word best can reside a lot of different things i mean francois you 
mentioned that the extra sort of props, the extra prestige that Vingegaard perhaps deserves because of his contribution to Sepp Kuss winning the Vuelta in a team sport. And it's something that doesn't often happen. A, a, a leader, a, a galactico of the sport helps a domestique, someone who's worked for him for several years. Um, and, and that does, or that will, in a lot of people's minds, deserve recognition. Rob, just when you were talking about Van der Poel's Tour de France, again, the Van der Poel Ultras might point out, might remind us that Van der Poel was key to Jasper Philipsen winning the stages that he did in the yeah. Tour de France. But, you know, there's a constellation of factors which can go into that definition of the best rider. You mentioned as well, Rob, um, how Jonas Vingar is perceived in terms of his personality, charisma, lack thereof. Um, whereas, you know, that's maybe a vote in Tadej Pogacar's favour, the panache with which he rides, the panache with which he sort of conducts himself off the bike. So it's, it's a difficult thing to, to nail down. Um, does it matter, Chad? Is this important? Is this something that um, we will point to in a final analysis of these respective riders' careers? Sure. I mean, I mean, journalists are humans, and I know the way they vote is much more uh, based on emotion, effect, uh, than it is on facts, probably. So it, it has to be a factor. And talking about Sepp Kuss, as you, the, whom you ju- just mentioned, I think, well, maybe Vingegaard will hand him his trophy, you know, like he did uh, in the Vuelta. But uh, there was an interview view of him, Sapkus was celebrating his uh, Vuelta victory in the, in the US uh, last week. I think there was sort of, uh, a little bit of coverage of this. And he hinted very precisely that he might go for another GC win yeah. if he had a chance. So the, the, the whole story that he was a one-off gift given to the best domestic in the world, you know, he had his chance. Well, obviously, Sepp is now uh, more, you know, more ambitious than we thought he might have in the first place. So maybe Roglic was, you know, was... was uh, right to leave <laughs> I certainly noticed that change in mentality and maybe direction of speech as well it was an interesting one with regards to next season and just on your point does it matter of course it matters for the moment but let's face it when when, when these riders retire and if somebody against their wisdom is still employing me to talk rubbish on the telly um, I am summing up their careers in the last race am I going to mention in the first couple of lines the Velo d'Or no, we'll be, talk- we'll be talking about which races they won, what they achieved. Yes, we might give it a cursory mention at the end. So does it matter? Yes, perhaps. But it's not, you know, it's not a prize of winning a race or anything like that. Yeah, well, I, I think that the Velodor, what, uh, you, you talked about the Rasmataz. I think that the Velodor are precisely trying to do that, trying to become the, the Ballon d'Or uh, of football, whereas for, for now it exists, it's been exist, it, it exists it's in 1992, I think, uh, the, uh, the Velodor. And uh, nobody really cared. You had the Prestige Piano. You had lots of rankings like that. But it just, my impression is that the, uh, the Velo, who belong to the same group as ASO and Lee. I saw that and they keep broadcasting it. It certainly set my mind racing as to who was going to win. And They belong to the same group as France Football, which is a Ballon d'Or. So it's actually all the same company. They're obviously trying to, 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 to lift it to the level of the Ballon d'Or. As well, Ballon d'Or, you look at that and, you know, I'm very sorry to those of you who don't like football. Listen, I'll keep it brief. I'm a mega football fan, but honestly... Do I care who wins the Ballon d'Or? Really? I'm not sure. They didn't give it to two guy Kenny Molu, the greatest midfielder ever to live. So. Rob, I think that has been leveraged hugely and the perception of the Ballon d'Or has changed hugely in the last 10, 11 years. Maybe because we've had these sort of Marca, preeminent... Two pre- 
Well, these two preeminent players, uh, Ronaldo and Messi, and it's become a sort of battle within a battle within the sport between uh, Ronaldo and Messi, and it's been a way for um, pundits to play them off against each other. Who has more Ballon d'Or? But the, I don't think that the Ballon d'Or. I mean, it's always had a certain prestige, but not as much as it currently has as it has had the last five or ten years and i i guess that aso um or the group that owns velo l'equipe would like to see the velo door follow a similar trajectory become more prestigious um with time chaps final thing um before we conclude the the very convoluted news roundup it's ended up being just a bit of a stop press there's a story that's come out this morning on reuters on the reuters network about uh, a mooted proposed sort of breakaway league, five teams supposedly talking. We know that Jumbo Vesma are one of them, Ineos Grenadiers are another. Um, investors are being sounded out. A sort of a Formula One style league is being discussed. No word on whether the Grand Tour organisers are involved, which, well, that leads to question marks certainly in my mind because i think it's very difficult to achieve anything in cycling without their blessing um again not much information francois your initial reaction to this story uh, i know the, the 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 guy who wrote the story who probably uh, you know was at the origins of the story who probably had a tip off about the story you know I, I worked for 20 years for reuters so i know you shouldn't trust them no i'm, I'm sorry it's not true <laughs> it's not true it's, it's it's a very it's, it's probably the most trustworthy uh, news organization in the world but my, my impression is that you know sometimes you do that i did it with the uh, trying to to to, to organize a grand départ of the giro d'italia in marseille sometimes you have you have a tip off and you, you work on it and you, you talk to a few guys to see where it goes and uh, there's always been talks of this sort of Formula 1 formula even Andrew Bruggen tried to create that uh, circuit in the past remember the, 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 the premises of the World Tour uh, I've, we, we've always heard uh, the Jonathan Waters uh, discussing a World Tour on the, for the same format as the American leagues like the NBA and with you know with a, a kind of guarantee for teams to stay in their whatever happens so it's, it's nothing really new is it well, we heard about the villain trying to break from the the the, the, the reign of ASO as you as we all and every time we discuss this there's, there's a there's a big problem in the what ASO think of it <laughs> and obviously we don't know so all we know they, they, they don't care <laughs> I mean, they have a blueprint now with Live Golf, and of course, everyone loves that, and everyone is um, absolutely delighted that the um, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia has decided to invest in golf. So, I, I mean, I'm being facetious there, but as soon as I did read this and I, I read the line referring to potential investors, I immediately imagined, assumed that one of the parties who could possibly be interested in investing and it wouldn't be very palatable to most of us would be the um well would be the crown prince of saudi arabia or the, the saudi arabia investment fund i think the general direction as well regardless of investors and things like that obviously there are those who people will prefer that to others um quite understandably i don't think it's healthy that aso has this current stranglehold on the sport as it is and I don't think it's ever been healthy, but it's probably preferable to having a closed shop. And this, you know, I'm dead against this American style closed shop league. I, I just don't think it fits in sport, European sport 
I, I just find it bizarre that you couldn't have a new team come along and, you know, work their way up or there'd be any sort of jeopardy for anybody who has a, a bad season. Um, I know this re- promotion relegation thing is precarious for some teams, but isn't it what we have in, in most sport? Doesn't it create that drama and emotion? And I don't know. I, I, I find it bizarre that we'd then swing from one extreme to the other. Spoken like someone who supports a lower division football team, definitely. Yes, yes. <laughs> and in strictly business terms, I mean, you were mentioning Saudi Arabia. I mean, you, Saudi Arabia is one of the big partners of ASO for the Dakar rally, you know. So, yeah. uh, so And the Saudi tour as well. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think they would work one against the other yet. <laughs> shoot, uh, shoot à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please. That said, PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode, our episode discussing the 2024 Tour de France route, of course, is sponsored by Bravour Watches. And appropriately enough, I am wearing one of the three designs by Bravour Watches, Mr. Rob Hatch, voice of cycling. You can see that on the video again here, can't you? I mean, I'm teasing you a little bit with the with the watch, but it's striking, isn't it, with the yellow strap? It's one of three Tour de France-inspired designs in the Grand Boucle range, which sits in a Grand Tour range of very elegantly designed and, and precision-made timepieces celebrating the three Grand Tours. And you asked last week, Rob, whether the Giro d'Italia-inspired watch, La Corsa Rosa, is pink. Well, yes, there's some very elegant pink detailing. You'll see if you go to the website, which is bravourwatches.com, and I'll put those details in the show notes. But uh, you're envious, aren't you, Rob? Looks blinding. And I tell you what, it looks like something pretty unique for a unique tour route as well. You better time yourself on the time trial up cold days and down to Nice. So the winner will be after that, if it times right. Oh, the timing will be precision, won't it? I'll be able to check how far outside the time limit I am with my <laughs> bravour watch. I should stress, actually, they very kindly sent me one, but it's only on loan. I haven't been gifted a watch, sadly, so I'm going to have to spend a few pennies uh, to get one of these myself. This whole range, there's lovely little nods to the three Grand Tours. I mentioned the pink uh, design on the face of the Giro-inspired watch, the yellow strap on one of the Tour de France-inspired watches, and as you'd expect, there's uh, plenty of red on the Vuelta watches, but it's subtle, it's nice. It's the kind of thing that other cyclists would notice it on your wrist and know instantly, if you're off the bike, that you are a cycling fan. It's not a gimmicky thing. It's a proper, beautifully crafted watch, and if you want to find out more about Bravo watches, Well, they're from Sweden. The company was founded by passionate cyclists 10 years ago. They've been riding their bikes all of their lives. And the watches are all hand-built in Sweden. They're made to order in small quantities. So it's a pretty exclusive thing that you're looking at there, Rob. And if you want to find out even more, you can see Bravour watches at Ruler Live in November. And, of course, cycling podcast listeners can get a $250 discount if they order a Grand Tour chronograph at bravoorwatches.com, you just need the discount code CYCLE. Well, chaps, I promised this episode would be mainly about the presentation of the 2024 Tour de France. That presentation, of course, took place yesterday in Paris. None of us were there. Rob, I think you were commentating. I was trying to do my best Christian Prudhomme and various mayors and organisers impression at the same time. Were you wearing a big medallion in on a, in homage to a, a French mayor? I even put some humongous bunting up in my uh, commentary <laughs> box. Francois, has this event changed much over the years? Um, we have, over the last three 
three years we've had the advent of the Tour de France femme and I think uh, they do a pretty good job of showcasing that yesterday it got well um, the first slot so the Tour de France femme was presented before the men and um, and I think that's something that's welcome but otherwise has this event changed very much over the years? Well, it, it changed when, when it went to Palais des Congrès in the 1990s because, because the first one I attended was uh, like uh, in, in a very small room, uh, kind of a hotel lobby and uh, I don't know, 50 journalists maybe. Uh, that was in the yeah, late 80s. So it's changed. That, but since it's been at the Palais des Congrès in Paris with uh, the stage and the, the, the video clips and the, uh, of the crashes of the previous years and stuff, uh, it's not changed much and I don't think it will as long as Christian Prudhomme will be in charge uh, because I mean the, the, the whole script of the, the night of the, well, the of the morning actually is uh, is written by Philippe Sudel their head of uh, communication uh, uh, it's all very what should be said or not said it's all kind of a, yeah the, the, it's a mixture of tradition and modernity because I mean uh, yeah the clips sometimes are very you know, they use the new technologies it's, but the, the, the way it's scripted uh, is not changing and I think it won't change because Christian Prudhomme is such a, a good speaker is is very good to hold the stage and uh, and so it, it you know and he knows how to be entertaining uh, he, know, he knows how to tell things uh, even sometimes wrong uh, stats but never mind I mean but it's, it's, it's a show he masters very well so it, it might change once uh, Christian Prudhomme um, goes but I, I, I can't see it's changing much uh, before that and it's also an occasion opportunity for the, the Tour de France family as they would say to meet up and I was sorry not to go this year because it's a great opportunity to see in one morning uh, 200 guys that you uh, you, you know you, you won't have to buy lunch to for the next of the year <laughs> which is so missing it means that I will have to spend much more money to, to, to get uh, in touch with all these guys so yeah it's a kind of a big gathering of the Tour de France family so yeah the people are happy uh, to, to on, in October to go to Paris for a couple of days uh, and, and have a long long lunch after the tour presentation and a long long evening in Troyes as well I think I saw on uh the gram last night there were a few people taking a few uh, glasses of the fizzy stuff in and that might be a bit of a clue as to where we're going in a minute um, also interesting in that it gives us the chance, or it certainly gives people on social media the chance to pass judgment on the sartorial choices of the great and good <laughs> of uh, professional cycling. It's a bit of a defile on the stage. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, had uh, Velo Door been awarded, I don't know, for the rider most likely to sell you a 100 square meter penthouse in the swankiest neighborhood of Oslo. I think um, Tobias Johannesson would have won that. Um, he was looking very dapper in his zip jumper. Um, had there been a Velodor for the rider most likely to be enrolling in a month-long full immersion English course in Brighton, Benoit Cosnefroy in his lumberjack shirt. Um, rider most likely to be cast as Gordon Gecko in a pro peloton remake of Wall Street, maybe Felix Gall. Um, so interesting. There's some very smart-looking uh, guys and girls there. And I think there, sh there may have to be a moratorium on white trainers and suits. Um, that particular ensemble, that game. Thumbs up from Francois. I saw a few Daniel Freiber impressions as well yesterday. There was a, there was the odd roll neck there, wasn't there? The li the milk tray man look. Yeah, Jonas Vingegaard sporting a look very similar to the one that was adorned by yours truly at wedding at the weekend. Actually, the <laughs> roll neck and the suit. But I agree, Vingegaard, I mean, in, you know, the fashion uh, brigade here, uh, Vingegaard, uh, you know, white sneakers, I mean, 
only for that reason I wouldn't I would have voted against him in the Verodor. <laughs> I, I thought the rest of his look was spot on. Um, footwear aside. Chaps, shall I tell you about the route? Why not? Um, let's um, buckle up and um, I'm going to take you around, well, not only France, but on a journey around Italy or part of Italy as well. The tour will start on the 29th of June on stage one um, in Italy. We are going to have seven climbs. Um, we're going to start in Florence. Some of those climbs are as long as seven kilometers. And the last one is going to Crest Summit in the Republic of San Marino. That'll be 25 kilometers from the finish in Rimini, a hometown of probably the most famous Italian film director of all time, Federico Fellini. Stage two will then take us back where we came from, essentially, but we're going to leave from Cesenatico, it's the birthplace of Marco Pantani, and we're going to go to Bologna via a couple of ascents of the Madonna di San Luca climb, famous from the Giro dell'Emilia and various stages of the Giro d'Italia over the years. Stage three will begin in gorgeous Piacenza, birthplace of Jacopo Guarnieri, and we were reminded yesterday by Christian Prudhomme, Pippo Inzaghi, uh, the famous bomber. I, I did have to look down at the translation script when I saw that to make sure I wasn't just making it up in my head. Famous Italian footballer, striker, Piacenza, which ASO made sound like a an awful southern Parisian suburb yesterday by calling it Plaisance. And from there, it's going to be an almost entirely flat journey to Turin, which is also, of course, the venue for the Giro's Grande Partenza this year. The next day, a mountain stage in the image of or in homage to Fausto Coppi. Why? Because it starts where one of Il Campionissimo's greatest exploits was concluded, that is to say, in Pinerolo. The race crosses into France and to Valois via the cause of Sestriere, Sestriere uh, the Mont Genevre and the Galibier, all of those climbs over 2,000 meters in altitude. The next two days are for sprinters, take us towards Burgundy and very expensive wine country. This is also where the next GC shakeup will take place on stage seven with a very flat 25-kilometer time trial from Nuit Saint-Georges to Gevry-Chambertin. Both names are very familiar to inner files. After another flat stage through Fancy Pants Vineyards, uh, one of the real showpiece stages comes on stage nine, a circular route out and back from Troyes. And it's Bouchon de Champagne, or Champagne Cork, so-called, because of the shape of the old town. Though it could also refer to the city's geographical location. The main attraction on this day, though, will be 32 kilometers of Chemin Blanc, or White Roads, 14 sectors in total, two of which featured in the Tour de France Femme last year. After a rest day in Orléans, it's another flat day, this one with some potential for crosswinds, finishing in Saint-Montrand, uh, hometown of Julien Alaphilippe. We then go into the Massive Centrale and an accommodation desert, Francois. Very difficult to find hotels on this day. The second longest stage of the race, 211 kilometers to Le Liron via the Puy-Marie Pas-de-Payroll. Um, we then have another interlude into Mezzo, a pair of sprint stages finishing in villeneuve sur lot and Pau. Then the race begins a short but intense helping of Pyrenean action. The first one, a summit finish at Pladade, and that's 10.6 kilometers at 7.9%. There's an ascent of the Tourmalet earlier in that stage as well. The second day in the Pyrenees is the queen stage of the race if we base that purely on climbing meters for it features the Perrosur, the Monte, the Porte d'Aspe from its harder side, the Col d'Agnès and the Plateau de Bay. 
15.8 kilometers long, 7.9% that one. I call it the Col du Bouchon, uh, the traffic jam climb pass, Francois, because it's hellish to get off, or it has been um, in the past. It's sort of when you, well, when you go off that climb down, back down the mountain, um, it's a T-junction, and everyone's going in the same direction. And we will probably spend about three or four hours in that traffic jam, which is, you know, thanks, Christian. Merci. Uh, second rest day will be in Cuisson, after which we have a flat and possibly windy stage to Nîmes. Then it's into the Southern Alps and a curious stage to Super Dévolu over the Col du Noyer, very famous for Louis Ocaña's mauling of Eddie Merckx in the 1971 Tour de France. The finale of this stage is also a perfect facsimile of the one won by Steve, Com Steve, Cummings, Steve Cummings in the 2016 Dauphiné. Stage 18 is an undulating transition stage from Gap to Barcelonette, although it doesn't really transition from anywhere to anywhere, as we're still in the Southern Alps, where stage 19 will take on, take in three 2,000-meter monster climbs, the Col du Var, the Cime de la Bonnette, which is often erroneously called the highest pass in Europe, or the highest road in Europe, it's neither. And that stage will finish at Isola 2000, Isola 2000. This, though, may be merely an amuse-bouche for the last mouthful of mountain passes. Stage 20 with its 133 kilometers and four passes, all of which are very well known to the vast colony of pros who live on the Côte d'Azur and who regularly ride Paris-Nice. It's the Braus, uh, Turini, Colmian and Cuyol. Then the grand finale, the first time the Tour de France has finished outside Paris, the last stage, or the first last stage, time trial since 1989, it's Monaco-Nice, it's 34 kilometers, and it features the last classified climb of the 2024 Tour de France, the 8 kilometer, 5.6%, La Tourbie. So chaps, in summary, four countries, um, republic, states, uh, Italy, San Marino, France, Monaco. 25 kilometers over 2,000 meters. That was an interesting stat that Christian Proudhon picked out in his summary. Seven mountain stages. And, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of a lot. A lot of everything there, Francois. And in the Phantom episode yesterday, in our pre-recording, <laughs> in our dress rehearsal, you suggested that this was a, a very, very rich cake. And maybe too rich a cake. Expand on that for us. Yeah, I think I think there is a very very heavy menu, very heavy diet, and it's. I think that in a way, Christian, it's it's great for the fans. It's great for journalists. There's a story every day. There's a story even before the race starts. You can mention the greats of the past. We we would cross the path of uh, Bartali, Copi, uh, Pantani, uh, Raymond, Raymond Pulidor, Botecchia. I mean, th th there's stories everywhere. There's stories of past races as well. Uh, Mentions of past welters in Nîmes and Grisant, well, well, you know, past uh, Giro's, uh, past. I mean, so so you've got this uh, this this uh, traditional uh, element uh, that that's there. But in the same time, so th that's the problem with Christian. He wants he wants history to be in the tour. He wants uh, he wants excitement. He wants he wants he wants the Alps. He wants the Pyrenees, and he wants, as he says, the intermediate massifs. That's the massive central. He wants central. the Giro. He wants the uh, Vuelta. Uh, he, he, he wants to put everything in there. 
Brilliant. Uh, he, he wants he wants Listerade Bianche as well as a, as a homage to Italy as well. And so he wants a little bit of wine uh, in Gevre Chambertin and Champagne in Troyes. I mean, at the end of it, it's great. What a feast. But I mean, whew, you need a very strong stomach to uh, digest this. So, and also it's in the same, in a way it's in the same, it, it's, a, it's a Tour de France that looks like the riders who've been winning it uh, recently. It's finished. You kind of have time trialists, uh, climbers. Uh, you, you have to be versatile to, to master all these different elements. And that's why we, we've had the uh, Pogacars and Vingegaard who turned from a climber into a very versatile rider as we saw last year in the time trial. That's the sort of riders. Uh, but it's also the sort of riders we see uh, up coming uh, years year after uh, year so it, it looks like uh, i mean it's it's yeah it's it's a tour in in its age but in in my mind there would be no lulls it's an yeah it's an it's an anti anti uh, jean-marie leblanc tour remember the days when we had eight sprint stages nothing happening that's finished thank goodness it's an anti jean-marie leblanc tour because we've got to commentate it from kilometer zero to the end every day well, well, this is this is interesting. I mean, it's a bit of it's a bit of a tour. Certainly, the way you've described it, and I think this is true, Francois. It's a tour for the TikTok generation. <laughs> Jean-Marie Leblanc was pre-MySpace, <laughs> but but Francois, I'm interested in well, hearing from you. What is the risk of this, or is there a risk of a of a maybe a conservative race, or are you talking purely in terms of what you believe ought to be the natural cadence of the Tour de France with its ennui, with its um, down moments. Is that your concern? Um, that that you know that that sh- that ought to be what the Tour de France looks like. There ought to be boring transitional stages. I'll make a cricket. Uh, I mean, because we we I mean, it's odd that the Frenchman should mention cricket. But what I loved about cricket when I was a kid, uh, going on holidays in Britain and watching the cricket is is that nothing happens most of the time, and it makes it makes the moments when something happens even bigger. You see what I mean? If you've got action all the time, you tend to forget. I mean, each stage replaces the the, the, the previous one. And, and, and in the end, you uh, I, I, I noticed even in the, in the couple of previous tours that, that there are stages that were great that I've totally forgotten because more excitement came afterwards. So yeah, I, I think uh, a cycling race is like a living uh, organ. You know, it, it needs its moment of uh, uh, ups and downs. And as you said, the risk, as we saw in the past, if, if the, the menu is too heavy, is that, uh, you know, coaches or teams say, well, you know, go light in the first. I mean, with the Galibier on day four, you know, uh, what, 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 is it, what is going to, ha- to happen? And I'm sure uh, uh, one guy who must be very, very unhappy about but he's, he's often unhappy. He's Mark Cavendish for for his his, his, his possible last Tour de France. I mean, you know, uh, he will have to struggle up the mountains very early on. He's had more last Tours de France than you, Francois. You've had a few. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, you mentioned day four. Day one's got more climbing than ever as well. Three thousand six hundred meters, and anybody who watches the Giro every May knows how hard the Apennines can be. Even the climbs you might never have heard of before. Will, you know, the Giro organisers will pick a mountain stage up a ski st- ski station that might only open for two months a year if there's a little bit of snow that falls. There's so many climbs around there. Um, I think you said, did you say seven, Daniel? On the first day, something like that, seven climbs. Um, that's more climbing, by the way, 3,600 metres than we had in the Basque Country on that opening day this year. And that was up and down all day. That was a brilliant start. Yeah, all right, 
day two, starts pan flat, but it's not the typical sprint stage you'd see in Emilia-Romagna at the Giro d'Italia, is it? Because you go up San Luca at the end. There's all sorts happening, and I just think this is a tour that reflects a change in sport, isn't it? I think so. I guess my other concern, Francois, or what might be other people's concern, is the suspense or lack thereof. You know, watching the that fantastic montage at the presentation yesterday, we were reminded of what a fantastic Tour de France it was and, and also how close it was. Um, this process of sort of Pogacar eating away at Vingegaard's advantage for most of the second week. In fact, um, after about stage five, it was a continual process of getting closer to Vingegaard and we expected then to have this fantastic or titanic battle in the last week. And then the suspense was punctured. It was killed by that final time trial at the start of the third week. But there is potential for the suspense in this Tour de France to be punctured quite early quite soon particularly as you guys mentioned with the Galibia on the fourth day maybe that that's that's also the point of this heavy menu that chef uh, prudhomme uh, designed was that, that there had been talk uh, in in previous years that the, the tour de france had become the most boring of the grand tours you know that the, the giro and the welter were more exciting so maybe he's been trying to add excitement there as it did it worked last year so so maybe that that's that's the reason why a very small point i wanted to point out that i, I noticed la couille the last uh, mountain stage they I know the finish well, uh, so guys, if you if you like your food, there's only one house at the top of La Couillol. It's a Michelin uh, uh, star restaurant. It's it's brilliant, but th- there's no way there's no way uh, guys that th- there's, there's no way a hundred thousand people will be up at La Couillol, and there's no way the press will be up there at La Couillol. And there seems to have been in recent years a, a tendency by ASO to stage more and more uh, summit finishes with uh, wh- where the press will be miles away. Uh, we had that in the, in the Puy de Dôme, we had there La Couille this year, we had in Granon. Uh, there, there are more and more climbs where, so so maybe we n- we'll never go up Plateau de Bay. Uh. It'll be down <laughs> at the football stadium in Nice because every, for the last, what, eight years or so, Paris-Nice, you've had either Turini, Couille, and what's the other one, Colmiane. And every time, television's always been down in the car park. <laughs> uh, Francois, yesterday watching that montage, I was also reminded of one of the sort of sour notes. And it becomes more sour the more I watch these images back um, from the 2023 Tour de France. I've, I thought the Puy de Dom was a bit of a, a stinker, to be honest. Um, just the images, um, it looked very strange, particularly with the, the leaders riding past that sort of train that weird kind of tourist train um, painted up for the Tour de France um, it just looked very odd I think that's something that doesn't necessarily need to be repeated again um, in the foreseeable future which is, which is a shame because it was something that we were very much looking forward to um, there are a lot of things to look forward to Francois you mentioned the number of sort of hooks for us journalists to hang stories on all those greats of the past that um, will form the basis of a lot of people's kind of colour pieces. There's one of those almost every day. Um, there's going to be a lot of time spent, I think, in Corrections Corner um, uh, in 2024 at the Tour de France. Um, I have to pull... Well, I'm not going to pull Christian Prudhomme up on something he said in his speech yesterday. It was only a cursory reference to Gino Bartali and how he saved uh, Jews during the Second World War. This, of course, is a famous story. It's something that people often mention in connection with uh, Gino Bartali. But there has been a lot of academic research in the last couple of years that has put, um, well, it's it's brought that into serious question how many he did save and whether he 
indeed he did save any Jews in the Second World War. Um, I also mentioned the Cime de la Bonnet and that being claimed to be the highest road in Europe, the highest pass in Europe. It's neither, but I'm sure we'll still hear it plenty of times during the 2024 Tour de France. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. One other thing I wanted to maybe pick your brains about, chaps, and mention is, well, how is Italy going to receive the Tour de France? There's already been a lukewarm reaction in some quarters to the news that the Tour de France will start in Italy for the first time, which in itself is surprising. It's going to cost, I believe, uh, just over 10 million euros. That's the figure that's certainly being talked about. Um, Six million euros in public money for or thereabouts in private funds or come from private investors um the italians and the french francois um i was reminded of what a, a sort of difficult complicated sometimes prickly coexistence this is neighborly relationship uh, a few days ago at the giro del veneto which i talked about last week i was standing on the final climb to the monte berico and of course that race at giro del veneto was won by dorian godon and I was standing next to some Italian fans, and when Godon came over the line, uh, one of these Italian fans said to the other one, oh, Frenchman's one, I've been to Francese. And the reply was, eh, pazienza, <laughs> never mind. And um, this also brought me back, I remembered our dear friend um, Richard Moore um, at the 2008 Tour de France, which, which made an incursion into Italy at Prato Nevoso, and I remember being with Richard that day and we were driving through the finish line um, sort of in the publicity caravan we were watching these awful plastic gadgets being distributed to the Italian fans being chucked out into the crowd into the tifosi and um, when one particular I think it was an elderly gentleman didn't receive whatever it was the plastic the neon blue plastic key ring um, that was flung in his direction and I think it was it was gobbled up by a French fan instead. Um, his reaction was, Esti Francesi Assassini. These French are murderers. <laughs> because, because he didn't get the key ring of his dreams. To be honest, living in Marseille, where two-thirds of the population have uh, Italian or origins, I don't feel that at all. You know, we like the we like the Italians much more than we love the Brits, much more. So, uh, so uh, no, I, I, much more than we like the Germans or anybody else. To be honest, so actually, yeah, there, there's, it's a, it's kind of, it's kind of a kind of a family quarrel because they're we, they're, they're, that's, that's, they're, they're probably the closest uh, in Europe or wherever the closest people to the French are the Italians. Uh, and and recipro- I mean, France is a strange country like Italy is because I mean we have uh, Alsatians, we are Germans, uh, so to speak. We have the Bretons, we are Welsh. Uh, I mean, their national land is the same. In the north, we, uh, I mean the the the. the uh, Lille is the Richel is a, the capital of, of Flanders and it's front it's in France. So we have a country that's very very diverse, and of course the southwest is very close to Spain. So we we, we have uh, we, we we kind of Euro, we we kind of Europe, you know, a kind of a summary of Europe uh, in in one country. So very little insularity here. <laughs> but that is Europe, isn't it? Continental Europe. We, we often forget about that when we're talking about what we have in our minds as traditional nation states. You know, where I live in Spain. You know, every region will tell you it's different. That oh, it's not really Spain. This, it's all different. Blah 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 blah. In France, you get the same story. I studied in Corsica, 
you know, and it's very, very different there. Um, in Italy, Daniel, how many times have we talked about the divides between the region, despite the fact that, you know, they've got a pretty nasty nationalist government at the minute. And, you know, there's all this sort of north-south divide. There's the sort of forced intent to unify a country that was all sorts of different kingdoms 162 years ago, something like that, 160 years ago. Um, something like that. Not far off that anyway now. The main character in the history of Italy is probably Garibaldi. He was French. Well, he, he was born in France, in Nice. So, <laughs> so I, I mean, obviously, we, we're born in our era with this idea of nation states but you know nationality i think is always a lot more complicated and feeling regional regionalism is a lot more complicated than perhaps we we sometimes care to admit you know we could go united kingdom at the minute you know <laughs> i don't think that's all big one happy family is it uh, for for different reasons um and of, often there are reasons that have been around long before before we were around. So I think those sorts of things, we just have to take them, make friends, get on with them and, and live live happily ever after if we can. Maybe the story here, you know, with the, the Grand Depart in, in Italy, what, what makes it, uh, how could I say, a, a bit frustrating for Italians. Remember when we started from Yorkshire was when the, when the uh, British cycling was coming up with lots of stars, a huge team and everything. But the Italians have nothing to, you know, that, that there's, I mean, the state of Italian cycling is uh, uh, not not appalling because there are things happening, but it's not great. So it's pretty, it's pretty dying. There's been another sort of reckoning at, this, at the end of this 2023 season with sort of rankings um, published at the end of the season. And Italy is it is it pretty much its lowest ebb, um, you know, really sort of getting into the weeds now into the politics of it. But the fact that one of the key men behind this bid, behind this Italian bid to hold the Tour de France is Davide Cassani, the former um, MG Techno Gym, and he rode for various other teams, professional, former Italian national team coach. Um, he, he, as I say, is one of the key figures in taking the Tour de France to Italy, but he's also, he has been for the past few years, working on some kind of project, Italian World Tour team project, which has not come to fruition and there are those who would suggest that it's a bigger priority to get an Italian World Tour team than it is to have the Tour de France coming to Italy and that maybe the Italians should be focusing more on their home race, the Giro d'Italia. Um, we could debate that for hours, chaps. Rob, we're going to spend a couple of minutes now, a few minutes talking about the Tour de France Femme, which is also going to start outside of France. And can you tell us what we learned yesterday about where that is going, please? It's certainly going to be the most ambitious route yet for the Tour de France Femme avec Zwift. Starting in Netherlands, first Grand Départ in the modern female Tour de France is where the first Grand Départ of the Tour de France was. In the Netherlands, of course, Amsterdam all those years ago for the men. It's Rotterdam for the women. Rotterdam, The Hague and Dordrecht is hosting it. So we've got a sort of flat stage with the obvious zigzags for the wind on the opening day. Day two sees two stages, a 67-kilometre expected sprint stage earlier on to Rotterdam. And then along the road to where we had the prologue of the men's Tour de France, I think it was 2011 in Rotterdam, it's an even shorter 63 
kilometer time trial. It's stage 2B, if you like, although they're not really officially calling it that yet. It's stage 3 they're calling it, but yeah, effectively a stage 2B. Thankfully, I don't think we'll be going back into the 70s and 80s where people were sleeping in school halls and, you know, riding the bikes and then sort of being, you know, shepherding into this room or that room. But it is a bit of a throwback to have two stages on a day in a, in a Tour de France. After that, we still are abroad, starting in Falkenberg, going up the Kauberg, and heading to another spring classic. From the Amstel Gold, we go to Liège, and it's a finish on the last few climbs, the famous climbs in Liège, Baston Liège, likes of La Redoute, Rochefaucon, things like that, going into Liège. And Demi Follering, who won last year's race, also won each and every race in that region last year. She'll be very excited about that. Afterwards, they start in Bastogne, and then finally on day four, Halfway through the race, go home to France. It's uh, a stage to Amnéville, 150 kilometres. The hills start to come more frequent and they're really now overcompensating even. If you're not a climber, you're going to think they're overcompensating for the flat roads that we had at the start of the race because after that, it continues. Starting in the Vosges the day after, Remiremont, heading to Morteau. And then we get the last weekend, well, the last couple of days, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. A return to Le Grand Bournon, where we saw one of the best La Course finishes ever between Van der Brega and Van Flirt, and that sort of real, real contested stuff all the way to the finish line. And the final day is going to see the most climbing ever in the Tour de France Femme avec Zwift. It's going up Alpe d'Huez, all of the famous hairpin bends, and silly, silly, silly numbers of climbing. Several thousand metres, I have it in front of me, 3,900 metres of climbing. So that's going to be the grand finale and the final hairpin bends to the top. So it looks like a brilliant route. Pan flat at the beginning, but very, very mountainous at the end. Thank you, Rob. Now, chaps, it, it seems to me that the big um, issue that the organisers of the Tour de France fam have had to grapple with, or the, the, the big sort of puzzle that they're having to work out as the years go by, and well, we're now into the third edition, is how to, we talked about it in the men's race, how to maintain suspense. And I think they've been concerned sometimes that the suspense might not last. We had, you know, in the first edition, Annemiek van Vleuten, um, well, she turned it into a sort of pretty much a fait accompli as soon as the road started climbing. And it's bold, isn't it, to have this much climbing um, in the third edition of the race. Two big mountain stages with that danger in mind that there is going to be a clearly superior athlete. Vollering was, you know, it, we, we were blessed this year in the sense that the Tourmalade stage was exciting. Um, some would suggest that that as well looked like a bit of a fait accompli. It was pretty clear that she was going to win. Um, but this year, or the coming year, 2024, um, that's going to be interesting to see um, how long the result is uncertain for, certainly as far as the general classification is concerned. To me, the, the, the main problem of the first three editions was that there was only one mountain stage and that the, the, the whole race was decided by this. The Mark Stein, Annemiek van Vleuten flew away on the first climb on that uh, stage and that was finished. You know, it was like all the, the Tour de France fam kind of summed up in one stage, which was a bit, uh, um, yeah, a bit of an anti-climax. It was a great, I mean, first uh, edition, every, but a bit of an anti-climax. And then last year, the Tourmalet decided everything as well. Uh, even if Kopecky was 
better than we expected her to be and uh, uh, she maintained the, the, the suspense by herself you know but by, by her sheer class but but that and i think that the only solution was to have two mountain stages uh and and that's what, what they're doing but obviously there's not enough stages i mean we we all want the tour de france femme to be longer i think i think at, at least for intermediate period 10 days would be great you know it would be the ideal uh, i mean i discussed that with a number of friends if, if they if because it, it'll be tricky to get to two weeks and three weeks in the near future but 10 days would be good you know uh, and and this the, the fact that we have two mountain stages i think and the the, 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 symb, the, the symbolic fact that they went to the tomale and now to l'albuez that, that they're more that they're going back to climbing the big climbs that they did uh, actually in the 1980s and 1990s we were mentioning yesterday Jenny Longo uh, losing to Leontine van Morsel uh, in in a previous edition of what used to be the Tour de France Femme, uh, which was uh, which, which, which was a, probably the, the worst day in the career of uh, Jenny Longo because she's from L'Albuez. She has a flat there. She was a skier there. She, so so the girls went up L'Albuez in major competition before, but this is you know iconic, and and I we, we all want. The tour, the tour fam to go even further in terms of duration, and 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 the more stages you'll have, the more suspense you'll have, and that's the way it, it should go. Ten days gives you a chance to visit two different mountain ranges as well and space the stages out, doesn't it? To sort of give it that grand tour rhythm. The minute you're building to this crescendo, which might be brilliant, we hope it's brilliant. But again, like you said, we've got the mountain stages, but they're sort of packed in at the end, compensating maybe for the mega flat roads of the Netherlands at the start. But I really like the route. And, and I, I'm, I'm delighted that finally, in this modern era, women are getting the chance to do at the Tour what they've only really had the chance to do at the Gino. Because until the Welter came along a few years ago as well, and obviously we had the first multi-day Welter properly this year anyway, with Lagos de Covadonga and all that sort of stuff. Um the Giro Donne, as it was then, I know it's changing next year, the, the name's changing, but um, or Giro Rosa, as it's been called as well, was the only race that had big, high-altitude climbs. It was the only real race for proper GC contenders. So it's good that that sector of the sport is now being looked after and, you know, catered for by, as you were explaining, and, yeah, you're sitting with two big fans of for things on the other side of the border here, the sort of, you know, the Giro and everything. But, yes, of course, we both agree that the Tour de France is the main... Um, brand in cycling and you know the Tour de France has to has to cater for that as well and it's brilliant that it, that's finally happening yeah, and also Valkenburg. I mean, once again, the, the, the amount of symbolism and history in there, Rotterdam, I mean, with, with the Dutch uh, women dominating the sport is very important. And and going back to Valkenburg, Valkenburg is, is a small town in many respects, but it's kind of a capital of, of the of classics uh, riding. I mean, with all the... And I, I was watching at the stats the other day, we were writing the tourist guide for the Tour Femme. Uh, Vulcan, uh, Ma Marianne Voss, she won... Uh, how many races she won in Valkenburg is absolutely amazing. The Amstel, the Hills race, which replaces a couple of cyclocross World Cup uh, races, a world title. I mean, I mean, some of the, you know, the, uh, I mean, they're going to iconic places as well, going up the Coburg, and that's the way to go. We were talking about Europe and its funny sort of, um, you know, geographical and cultural things not so long ago, just five, ten minutes or so ago, you know, how it's made up. And one of the wonderful things about that stage is I love that you're in that region where you can be on your bike for hours and you're not realise until you see the, the language on a sign which border you've crossed. You're in the same place and it's a wonderful region to ride your bike in. And, you know, I think as 
sort of international peace-loving people. That's what it should be like, shouldn't it? You go across a border, you don't realise. It's absolutely brilliant. Riding from Falkenberg all the way over the Liège there, they're going to cross from Dutch-speaking Netherlands, Dutch-speaking Belgium, into French-speaking Belgium, and all the terrain's going to change as well. It's going to be wonderful. Yeah, and I just wanted to make a point. One of the obvious, I mean, it's not very glamorous, but one of the reasons why the Tour de France start was in Italy, and we have three days outside of France, is also because of the Olympics. France couldn't afford to have security forces, you know, on the spot for the whole duration of the men's tour then the Olympics then the, the women it would have been too much so they, they, they made sure they had days in uh, you know Holland and Belgium and also the first days in, in Italy so, so that the, you know the police forces uh, uh, ever rest if you have a couple of strikes in the middle uh, <laughs> could be a problem I think just on that point, it's worth noting, isn't it, that for anyone listening who is thinking that it's going to follow the, the men's tour de France like it has done in a couple of years, there's a change of date because of that region next year. I think it starts the day after the Olympic Games finish in Paris. Final word on the course, and again, going back to the point about suspense, I, I just wonder, you know, it, this is a sort of a learning process for everyone as far as the Tour de France family is concerned and how best to balance the, the, the needs and abilities of climbers versus time trialists. And it is, you know, it's a different sport from the men's race. I just wonder about the 6.3 kilometers of time trialing. One way maybe to maintain a little bit more suspense, particularly when you're adding more mountains, bigger mountain stages would possibly be much longer time trials. Um, you know, maybe a 20, maybe 30, maybe even 40 kilometer time trial. Um, if you think about a rider like Kopecky, I know that the difference between her and following um, in time trials was not big necessarily this year. But in future, I can imagine as the sort of the specializations emerge, as the lines of kind of demarcation between specializations become more pronounced in women's cycling, um, maybe that is one way to have a closer battle um, for the overall title in the Tour de France fam. Well, chaps, in Lionel's absence, we've really let loose as far as the speculation is concerned. We've talked a lot about what's going to happen, what might happen in 2024. And we're going to talk a little bit more now about 2024, just in conclusion. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, last week, I taught, we talked quite a bit about... The number of riders, well-established riders, stalwarts of the pro peloton, of the World Tour peloton, who have found themselves at the end of this 2023 season without a contract, without uh, a deal, without a gig for next year. And there, there are a lot of them. Um, we talked about the African riders last year, Scarbu Gamay, um, Emmanuel Gebrexavier, Mehawi Kudus. We talked about others as well. And then we heard from um, Scarbu Gamay. We had a very passionate interview from the Jaco Lula ride about how much he wants to continue his career in the World Tour Peloton um, in spite of not having a contract at the moment. Um, chaps, this is going to be a bit of a recurring theme, I think, over the next few weeks. We're going to be surprised, I think, in some cases to learn how difficult it's proving for some riders, some names we know very well to find deals um, for next year. There were a couple of things I sort of failed to mention last year. We talked about a few of the reasons why um, this might be happening. Um, one thing I think we didn't mention last year was the proliferation of development teams. Um, the fact that pretty much every World Tour team has got one now. And in order to sort of justify that investment, they're having to blood more riders, more riders sort of falling off those production lines. Um, 
we talked as well about this perception that riders are turning pro younger, that World Tour teams are taking a punt on riders at younger ages. Um, I did a bit of uh, sort of investigation about that this week, had a look at some statistics, and just at the average ages of new professionals, riders turning professional in the World Tour, and how that's evolved over the last 10 years. Um, I sort of did averages looking back to about 2009, and the average ages of riders being given their chance in the World Tour for the first time has definitely gone down. It's gone down significantly. Um, it was sort of typically around 2013. Um, most seasons it was around high 22, so nearly 23 uh, years of age was the average and the inflection point, the big inflection point we talked about last year was, I think, Egan Bernal winning the Tour de France at, was he 21 in 2019? And then, of course, a year later, Tadej Pogacar winning the Tour de France at age 21 as well. And there's been a big shift since then. And the average age now for World Tour neopros is in the low 21s. And next year, as things sound, 38 riders are going to turn pro in the world tour and their average age is 21.3 and that's been sort of typical of the last three years and we talked last week about the sort of fetishization of youth um understandable um for some reasons also backed up better um, substantiated by the the data that's now available um, teams have a much better, much more transparent view of abilities, and and that has definitely been factored into their thinking. Francois, I, I think I still think there's room for you know everyone from uh, the age of 19 to to the age of nearly 40. In the uh, it's so I mean everybody's so different, and experience matters, and we we we'll, we'll always have. Uh, it's funny because remember like 20 years ago it was all about the uh, uh, it was all about uh, you know still being competitive at the age of 40 I remember Josh Foreman winning the uh, heavyweight boxing title at the age of 42 or whatever it was and and then it, it goes up and down this kind of uh, of, of, of data the, the it, as we know it's not it's not really new I mean uh, Foster Copy won his first or then Bartali won their first Giro uh, at, at 20 or something so I, I mean great talents were talented uh, at, at a very young age and there's nothing new there it was just the management of the careers that was a little bit different uh, everybody believed that the the, 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 the age of uh, uh, maturation for a sportsman was around 26 27 and it's still it's still roughly the case I I, 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 I read an interview of a um, I, I will never be able to pronounce his name our, our uh, Bora Ansgro a Belgian friend uh, <laughs> Kian uh, who was saying that he, he was, you know, he, he, he was try, he was probably re going to reach his peak uh, around 25, 26. So there's still this impression that you 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 have to wait a little bit to 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 get there. The figures very very clearly bear that out, Francois. If you look at any, uh, the, there are figures available. There are graphs on pro cycling stats that show this, and this has not changed. The peak age for a professional cyclist in terms of results, is 27. Of course, the problem is, as we saw with Nairo Quintana and Egan Bernal, unfortunately, they won, uh, they started winning at a very young age, but they didn't, and they stopped winning at a very young age as well. You see what I mean? I mean, they're, 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 actually the time, there, there is a, there is a, a 
period of what five six years maybe where when, when you you stay at your peak so if you start to be at your peak at 20 there is a fair chance that you you you, you give up the sport like Bjorn Borg at 27 you know so uh, I mean uh, it's I it's it has still to be proved that you can start very young and have a lasting career and be and still be good at 14 or you know sometimes also the uh, you 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 get tired of winning too early i don't know i mean there's not enough probably data to to to, to, to decide on that but but as you say the problem at the moment is because of the trend of young riders and you said and and you know uh, uh, dev development teams uh, happening uh, take Groupama FDJ I, I talked to Yvon Madiot three years ago about the French not having young uh, riders and he said wait a minute uh, we're working on it and then we saw how well they did work on it because they probably have the best uh, develop, development team around at the moment so they, they changed that but by the same token, AG2R, we had a development team forever, I think, since they started. They dropped theirs for financial reasons. So we have this mixture of, of things. You know, the, the, the future belongs to the young, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's costly to have a uh, development teams. And it, it might, you know, even, uh, how could I say, enhance the difference between the big teams and the, and the small teams, the teams who can afford to have development teams and the, and the ones who can't. So, but once again, the result for now is that the past 30-something, you're out, you know, and, made, and most of the riders who, who struggle to find a team are... Well, the, the, the older ones, which is a bit of a shame, I think. On the development teams, I think this is finally cycling catching up with other sports and becoming more professional. Um, you know, it's probably been happening for a long time. As you desire, you mentioned real trendsetters in, in that respect. And, uh, you know, obviously French cycling has had a lot of criticism for being old fashioned in the last 10 years or whatever. But in terms of Groupe AMFDG, I'm with you. I think they're one of the top teams in the world at this. And they haven't just developed riders for themselves. You look at riders who've gone on to ride in other teams who've come from that team as well. We should probably give a bit of kudos to, to DSM too. You know, they've had a lot of young riders turn pro. They tend to have a young squad. But in terms of the numbers that you're talking about, Daniel, that's just physiological, isn't it? Because there's all sorts of other factors, as we know, that come into this. Francois, you touched on whether you could continue for years at the top. Surely a lot of that is psychological as well as physiological. Um, you know, it might just be not be miles on the clock in terms of what you're putting into your body physiologically. It's how much you can deal with, what your motivations are and things like that. The, the miles on the clock um, theory is one that is often bandied around, for example, in relation to people like Primoz Roglic or even Chris Froome, we heard it. Um, Chris Froome started late, therefore he will go on longer than riders do typically. Um, I, I think it's totally, totally unsubstantiated. Even even anecdotally, it's not very well substantiated. Um, you, you look at a rider like Davide Rebellin, who turned pro in his early 20s and was competitive into his early 40s. And it varies so, so much. And, and I'm very cautious when I hear, and I have heard a lot of pros and a lot of coaches over the last couple of years suggest that the likes of Pogacar, Bernal, well, Bernal's a special case because of what happened to him, but these young phenoms um, suggest they're not going to last uh, a very long time. I, I think that we will see huge variation uh, in that. Life's not uniform, is it? Not everybody's the same. You have late developers as well. I actually heard something really good from Matt White recently. Uh, might have been on a rival podcast. I'll keep that quiet. Uh, and it was... It was fantastic, actually. Uh, I will give him the credits, actually. It was on Bobby and Jens. They had a, a chat with him for about an hour. And he was talking about 
how young riders were sort of the, you know, trying to think the right word, but it, it was the trend to pick up young riders. If you've been discussing there, Daniel, um, and talking about the numbers and things like that and everybody's scouting, but Matt White was saying, well, hang on a minute. There's a lot of people who fall by the wayside as well. Doesn't mean they're not going to be top riders because not everybody's the same. For whatever reason, they might develop later. Psychologically, they might be different at a certain age as well. And he was looking at trying to pick up those riders who'd fallen by the wayside as well because it was also a market that not many teams were looking in at the moment. They were all concentrating on getting the best young talent. So it's just worth remembering when we talk about all these trends that everyone is different and life isn't uniform is it like i said psychologically there can be massive massive impacts on how people approach things the numbers and physiological numbers you obviously have to have them don't you but there are many other factors that influence it as well chaps uh, i said we heard from scarbu gamai last week uh, jaco alula rider and i propose we play out today by hearing from another rider who finds himself in a similar position um he is a rider he's a voice he has a voice that is very familiar to listeners of a cycling podcast has been for several years his name is joe dombrowski an american rider and um, former winner of the tour of utah former giro d'italia stage winner won various other things ridden for team sky ridden for ef education first uae team emirates um l- most recently in the last couple of years has been riding for astana kazakhstan and unfortunately, at the moment, Joe doesn't have an employer for next year. We obviously hope that changes. We're keeping our fingers crossed for him. Um, either way, whether he does or he doesn't find a, a gig for next year, we'll have a more detailed debrief with Joe um, at some point over the winter. But as I say, I propose we play out um, with Joe Dombrowski and we hear what he has to say about his current situation. And, chaps... Well, Francois. Salut. Merci. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Francois. Obviously, you know, now we're getting to the last week of October and still some possibilities out there. But as time goes on, there's less and less spaces. So it's been my off season now. I had a few weeks off the bike and really just this week I've started kind of uh, riding a bit again, but not really a clear direction yet for the moment for 2024. I don't think you've been in this position before. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, just talk to us a bit about the well, the, the mechanics of how you're trying to be proactive and, and how it works with your agent and you, how much is your own initiative, how much can you rely on your agent. Um, in your case, it's the former Festina Pro, Una Lauka, um, in this situation. I mean, I've signed sometimes... Probably the earliest I've ever signed in the year is, I think, late May or early June. Probably standard is like August. I have signed as late as October before. I think my last 2018, I did one more year with EF and I signed a one-year extension quite late. So it, it kind of just depends on the year. But I would say that I've always worked with an agent. I've worked with a couple agents in my career. As you said, I, I work now with Yona as of about a year ago and i tend to leave it to them but also i kind of look at it as a bit of a collaboration because i mean if you stay in a team it tends to be easier than finding a new team it is kind of a relationship game obviously you know there's the stars of the sport that barring lack of budget you know if today is on the market if every team had the money i think a lot of them would put in a bid and it's probably not that difficult for him to find something 
But for a lot of the Peloton, it's not quite so easy. And in that instance, I think working with an agent can be useful, but I think also kind of tag teaming it. And if, if you have relationships or some sort of angle that you feel you can leverage, which can be anything from, you know, past teammates, staff and other teams, sponsor relationships, which can be useful. I think that's a good way of going about it. I mean, I'm sure a lot of guys kind of blindly trust their agent to do everything. But from my end, if you see something, I, I don't think it's a bad idea to to kind of pursue that too. Joe, we spoke obviously at the start of the year. We did a long po- podcast with you and Larry. I think we did what well, we did a debrief at the end of last year and we also did one before this season. Talk, we talked about your goals and what you hope to improve, work on. And looking back, and bear in mind the situation you find yourself in, um, how how much do you think the current situation, i.e. not having a deal, um, is linked to actually what you did on the road or didn't do on the road? Or is it is it mainly other circumstances? I mean, I think uh, the, the biggest part of all of this always comes down to your performance. Um, I wouldn't say that I had a very good season. So if the results are there, it doesn't guarantee anything really, but it probably makes it easier for you. And then, yeah, there can be, I mean, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle and, you know, um, results aside, like if you present great value to the team you're in or, you know, to another team, then results can be maybe less relevant. And then there are other moving pieces just in the kind of more um, global side of things in terms of just the rider market in general. Um, You know, this year has been pretty tumultuous in that regard. End of September, everyone kind of saw the news about the potential merger of Jumbo and Quickstep. There was a lot of uncertainty around that. And if that went through and, you know, some of those um, extra riders basically can ride for free next year if they're mm. paid by their former team. That makes it obviously really difficult because you flood the market with riders, but also, you know, if you're trying to sell your house for a decent price and your neighbor's selling his house for free, for it's, free. Yeah. it's, uh, it's going to be difficult for you. I'm sure yours is, so be- I'm sure yours is beautifully decorated though. So you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I would say all those things kind of come into play and, yeah, I mean, your performance is the best way to ensure the most favorable outcome for yourself, which I'd be the first to say it wasn't the best season for me. But there are also a lot of other kind of moving pieces. And there is probably, to some extent, a bit of luck of the draw, too. Mm. Joe, we'll probably do a, a, a big debrief. Whatever happens, we'll probably do a big debrief for the benefit of the listeners. Um, we'll go into more detail maybe about performance uh, in the coming weeks. But just thinking ahead and thinking about what the next few weeks might bring, will just tell us how do you currently feel about the situation? Yeah, I mean, I would say for the most part, I kind of carried on with my off-season as normal we do so much traveling all year long that mostly it was kind of hanging out at home and i was off the bike for a while and it was probably a less fun off season than if you had something secured for next year but i wouldn't say it was like totally looming over everything either i guess my mindset is a little bit like really stressing about it doesn't change anything in regards to the outcome so 
that's, you know, not what I was going to do. And yeah, I mean, in terms of if, if this was kind of the end, I mean, I think everyone as a athlete wants to have to end on their own terms, which mm. maybe, I don't know how often that happens. Yeah, I'm not I mean, sure either. I maybe, think it's, it's a, a bit of an attractive illusion a lot of the time. Yeah, I think it could be a bit of a luxury. I guess in my discussion with Yona a few days ago, kind of what I expressed to him is like, I would like to go somewhere just that I can do the big races and, and enjoy racing. And that was kind of my priority. And I mean, if I could do, I mean, I'd like to do a few more years, but you know, not just one more year, but I sort of said to him at a minimum, it would be nice to kind of finish on maybe a bit higher note, mm. um, which as I say, like everyone wants to do that. Not everyone can. That would be, I think the ideal uh, outcome. Yes. Um, as I said, we'll do a deep dive with you in a few weeks. Um, I mean, just looking at your season, you've been, you know, you finished a lot of races, you finished, I mean, you, you, you know, often in, in these situations, you look for kind of injuries or, or big, big setbacks, which have prevented someone from performing. Um, and, and reliability, being available, being consistent, finishing races, that's, that's key as well. And you have, you've definitely ticked that box this year. Um, and well, you mentioned the team, the team obviously didn't have a great year either. And they're going through a bit of a broader transition, Astana becoming much more of a sprint focused team for next year. But Joe, we'll, we'll leave it there. And well, we've all got our fingers crossed for you. And hopefully, hopefully the next time we talk, we will be talking about well, you very much still being in the World Tour in 2024 um, with a new team. Thanks. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Free, and Lionel Burnett.